Everybody else take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, guests, glad you're here again. I know I keep saying that, but we really are glad you're, glad you're here. Uh, glad that God has blessed you. We're in a study on 1 John. Uh, great book, great small book. You can read the whole book in about five minutes, but it will take the rest of your life to try and figure it out and to live it out. It is very rich, very deep. Uh, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, it says this, And we know that the Son of God came. Why? So that we could recognize and understand the truth of God. Without the Son of God, you're not going to understand the truth of God. What a gift. And we are living in the truth itself in God's Son, Jesus Christ. This Jesus is both true God and real life. Dear children, be on guard against all clever facsimiles. The world is constantly trying to mimic, copy, give you a fake of what Jesus is and who he is. And in today, we're going to talk about one of the most challenging verses, two or three of the most challenging verses in John, because it's been so misinterpreted over the years. Now, I don't generally give a bibliography uh, before I preach a sermon, but I I just want to feed forward here that um, many of the thoughts I'm about to give you are not my own, because this is a much complicated and discussed and philosophical thing. And the good news is I've had a lot of time this week. I've been in Colorado, so I've had a lot of time to read on this topic. That's good news for me, bad news for you if you're in a hurry, Uh, because this is a rich topic to talk about Christ and the world. What is our response to the world? And let me just give you a a couple of authors. Andy Crouch discusses this a lot in his books. Tim Keller deals with this at the forefront of his discussions as a pastor in New York. There's a classic book by Richard Niebuhr called Christ and Culture, which I first read in college, and um, I was laughing with Adrian because she's reading it now for a theology class. So I actually went back and looked at it again. I don't understand it much more now, Adrian, than I did then. So if you're looking for the dummy guide today, I'll do what I can. But I'm not sure I really got it all. Anyway, we're going to look at how does Christ, or how do we relate to the world based on this passage in John. Because, you know, when you leave here, it's different. You know, you're going to go to work. You're going to go to the store. You're going to flip on a football game. Somewhere in the football game, the world is going to come right at you. Uh, You're going to go to the movies. You're going to live life. How do we live life as followers of Jesus Christ? And there are a lot of different philosophies about how Christians are supposed to live life in the culture in which we've been placed. And we're going to talk about what I believe John is saying today in this and how we can maintain our equilibrium, so to speak. You ever feel a little off balance when it comes to how to live life? I do all the time, so join with me as we look at this discussion. Do not, this is chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, see, I don't know about you, but I want the love of the Father to be in me, right? So John is saying, if we love the world, The love of the Father is not in us. Therefore, I'm going to avoid the love of the world because I'd rather have the love of the Father. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life 
comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Let's look at this together, because it's obvious that we're not supposed to love the world, but I think it's very important for us to understand what in the world John is talking about. I thought that was funny. You can go with me if you want. Number one, <clears throat> number one, loving the world is not the same as loving the world. Loving the world is not the same as loving the world. He says here, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. How do you love the world and yet not love the world? Are you with me so far? I mean, it's obvious in passages like John 3.16, for God so loved, what? The world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We are to love. It's obvious God loves people. God loves those who are far away from him. God loves the world. And we, in turn, are to reflect the love of God in this way. Last week at a ladies' event uh, that was hosted at my, my home, they went around the room to ask people how they had come to fullness and how long they had been there. And one of the ladies uh, at the meeting, I have her permission to share this, one of the ladies at the meeting said, and she's been a part of fullness for years, she said, I got out of prison on Friday, I came to church on Sunday, and I've been loved ever since. To me, that, that's what we're to do. We're to love the world. I mean, it just moves my heart to hear stories about people who've come to fullness from all backgrounds thinking, I am unlovable. I just got out of prison. I just did this. I just did that. I just, and they find and experience the love of Christ here. We're, we're to love the people of the world. God loves the world, and we are too. What determines your definition of the world is context. Context. I mean, we understand that the same word can mean two different things depending on how we say it. One of my favorite old cartoons is uh, comic strips. Is I, I confess, I love comic strips. I've read the paper ever since I was little. I still too. Kathy makes fun of me when she finds me reading the comics. Seems so unintellectual, but I think it's pretty high intellect, actually, uh, to read the comics and understand them and appreciate all types of humor. Anyway, one of my favorites is Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, you remember Calvin and Hobbes, little boy, stuffed tiger? I mean, really, it's very intellectual. Uh, Calvin is named after John Calvin. This tiger is named after Thomas Hobbes, a philosopher. How much more intellectual can you get? Anyway, the little boy is always imagining things. And one day, uh, I, I remember this comic, and I had to go find it again. One day, he is uh, pretending that he's in a fighter plane. And he, it says in the first square, a voice, excuse me, a voice cracks in Calvin's radio. Enemy fighters at 2 o'clock. To which Calvin responds, Roger, what do I do until then? <laughs> I mean, we understand. Context determines definition, right? Context determines what is it that we're talking about. So in the Bible, the world can mean many different things, and it's really the context of what is being talked about that determines. For instance, if you, we know it can't be people, because as we've said, God already said he loved people so much that he sent his own son to die for them. 
World can't mean people. World can't mean the material world. Let me say that again. I don't believe, and in this context, world means the material world. Because then you end up with the belief that the physical material is bad and you have to stay away from it. Let me say that again. If you're not careful, you'll come up with this belief that the material, physical world is bad and you have to stay away from it. John, as a matter of fact, is battling this very philosophy in the, in the letter of John. It's known as Gnosticism, and it basically says physical is bad, spiritual is good, stay away from physical. You look at what John says in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Gospel of John. He's not saying material stuff in and of itself is bad. God, as a matter of fact, the Bible runs contrary to this. God looked at everything he made, and it was, it was good. Colossians 2.20, Paul says this. Paul says, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, that's a key phrase, basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Do you understand what Paul is trying to say here? He's trying to say, listen, things aren't bad. You're dying to the principles of this world. So why do you say don't taste, don't touch, don't handle? That's not the way God created us. 1 Timothy 4, Paul also says, they forbid, and he's talking about false teachers here, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing to be, is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. God is says in his word, Paul reiterates it, Christ, John, they all talk about the material in and of itself is not bad. If you come away with this material is bad mentality, then you will live an ascetic lifestyle. You'll have to separate yourself out. You'll have to go live in the desert. You're going to have to separate yourself from people and from things. You'll be saying, I can't eat this, I can't drink this, because this is what God wants. We should receive the physical as a gift. And we're going to see receiving the physical as a gift is really brought into balance by maintaining an eternal perspective. This past week, as I said, I was in Colorado. I go there every year with some friends, we uh, hike in the mountains, and I mean, the natural beauty in, in the Rocky Mountains, to me, is just phenomenal. I, I just took these on my iPhone. I mean, if I had a really good camera, I know the iPhone cameras are getting better, but if I had a really good camera, uh, you'd be able to experience this lake that's at like 10,000 feet that you have to hike three and a half miles to get to, and you get up there, and it's just, it just takes your breath away. Now, when I get there, one of two things can happen. I could either worship the nature, or it could point me to the God who created it. Now, see, for me, it points me to God who created it and says, for it just restores my soul. There's something about being in that environment that restores my soul. Loving the world is not the same as what many times we describe as loving the world. So, what is John talking about? Well, he's talking about loving the world is when you make the things of the world central. The center of your life. 
In verse 16, he says, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Good news. John defines his context because he says, For everything of the world, everything in the world. Then he's going to tell us what it is. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Lust in the Greek word, in the Greek, is the word epithumia. Epithumia. And I think I'm saying that right. I'm really not a Greek scholar. Uh, I can read the words, but I don't really speak Greek all that much. So when you all get back from Greek, Greece, you can help me. But epithumia, which literally means over-desire. That... Um, the prefix, epi, E-P-I, we also use for like epicenter. When we talk about the epicenter of an earthquake, we talk about it's not just the center of the earthquake, it's the center of the center. I mean, it is, the, it is ground zero for what happens and causes everything else to rumble. John is saying the flesh, the eyes, the pride, it becomes an epi-desire, an over-desire of our lives, where our world centers on these things. That's what it means to love the world. When the world and its cares become the central thought of our lives. So let me look at these examples uh, just for a minute. First, he talks about uh, the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. Now, again, Here's the challenge with reading the Bible many times, especially in English. Uh, The word flesh here is different than flesh at other places. Flesh is used to talk about skin. Flesh is used to talk about desires. Flesh is used to talk about sin. Here, the word is bios, which we get biology from, or life. So he's, he's talking about the things, the stuff, when we start to lust after material fleshly things. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. In, in other words, the flesh means body here, the lust of the body. So what are some of the things that we, we lust after? I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. The list could be really, really long. But for instance, food and drink. There's nothing wrong with enjoying food and drink. Somebody say amen. 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 Thanks. But our, our new worship leader loves food and drink. But, but when we use food and drink to control our emotions, or it's the reason we live, then it has gotten out of order. It has become an epic desire. It's become central to our lives. You know, we, we eat and drink in order to live. We don't live in order to eat and drink. Hello? You you with me? And if you get things out of whack, and it's not bad, I I think it's a good thing God made food and drink enjoyable. I think it's a pleasure and a joy. He did it on purpose, but if it becomes the center of our lives, then it's out of whack. Talk about sex. Within the blessedness of marriage, it's a wonderful thing that points us to the joy I mean, think about why the Bible teaches about sex. It points us to the joy of an eternal relationship with God, an intimate relationship with Him. But when sex becomes the epicenter of our lives, when we live for sexual gratification, sexual pleasure, 
then something is dehumanizing about it, in fact. I mean, think about these first two things I'm just talking about, food and drink and sex. I mean, is not the American culture driven by these two? Look, just watch football this afternoon. Count the percentage. You and Mark Rhodes, count the percentage uh, of, of, Mark, what time the Dolphins play, buddy? Oh, we got plenty of time, dude. Mark lets me know when they're on at noon, so we're, we're good so far. Just, just, you could just count the number of commercials that are going to appeal to this left, lust of the flesh as far as food and drink and sex are concerned. How about rest and leisure and work? How, what do those have to do with the flesh? Well, they feed our flesh. What, why do you work? Why do you work? I mean, the Bible has a lot to say about work, by the way. If you work because it brings you status or a name or a position or even money, then you should be working because God has gifted you, God has a place for you, God, you're, you're contributing to the kingdom of God advancement in some way. How many Americans today work so they can play? I mean, really, well, I, I, got, I, I live for the weekend. That's our motto, isn't it? I, I'm trying to figure out a day I can work really hard for four days because I'm really look. I'm my whole life is headed toward the vacation, the pleasure, the retirement. We've made leisure and play a god in our world. We have to, it's a lust of our flesh to have vacation. Look, work should be. A, I, I know work in this sinful age is always going to be hard, but there should be something about work that is. Moving forward God's kingdom. Hopefully you see the point. I could make a I mean I could stay here for a long time about the lust of the flesh. It's nothing inherently wrong with work or sex or food and drink, but when they become the epicenters, epicenters of our lives and over desire, we're loving the world. Look, I, I gotta move quicker. But this is really good. Lust of the eyes. An over-desire of the eye. It has to do with what looks good. Again, there's nothing wrong with enjoying beauty, just like I talked about enjoying nature and the beauty of nature. But when it becomes the center of our lives, then it's wrong. For example, there's nothing wrong with taking care of ourselves and dressing nice. Amen? Hello? Hello? (laughs) there's nothing wrong with taking care of yourselves and looking nice and dressing to look good. But for many, for many, especially in this beauty-centric culture in which we live, it's become their reason for being. I mean, I'm not even going to get into, oh, why not? The amount, the, the number of dollars spent on plastic surgery in the United States is so far off the charts. I was talking to my brother this week. He lives uh, in South Florida, and he goes to a mall called the Boca Mall. It's in Boca Raton. He said it's a very rich, very wealthy area. He said, but I swear, 50% of the women and one-third of the men that I see have had some work done. I, I don't know how he knows this percentage, but he says you cannot walk through that mall without thinking 
This is a display for plastic surgery. We are so beauty-centric that we judge things based on externals. We have, people, we have a lust of the eye. It is an American disease. When you see someone, what is the first, oh, wow, they're really pretty. Now, again, it's nothing wrong with enjoying beauty, but there's something out of whack where we've lost the richness of the soul and exchanged it for the shallowness of the external. One of the classic plays I remember reading both in high school and college is the play. It was written by Rostan in 1897, uh, Cyrano de Bergerac. Uh, Cyrano is uh, a not handsome man, and I think he appealed to me because he had a rather large nose. And so, uh, that's a little joke, but... uh, Anyway, he's the best sword fighter in all of France, poetic, brilliant guy, falls in love with this woman named Roxanne, who is gorgeous, um, but he doesn't think he ever has a chance with Roxanne because he's so ugly. Unbeknownst to him, another man by the name of Christian, ironically, who also falls in love with Roxanne. The thing about Christian is he's very handsome, but he's also relatively dumb. Uh, for lack of a better word. So he can't communicate with Roxanne, so he talks to he talks Cyrano into writing letters on his behalf to the beautiful Roxanne. So Cyrano writes these beautiful letters because he is, in fact, also in love with this woman. He writes this beautiful love poetry and letters to her, and she falls in love with Christian, thinking he's the author of the letter. Story goes along, Christian and Roxanne marry. Christian eventually discovers, as time goes along, that Roxanne is in love with whoever the author of the letters is. I mean, she says to him, I, I, I was attracted to your beauty, but I fell in love with your letters. He realizes she's not in love with me. She is in love with Cyrano. So he throws himself into a battle and is killed in battle. Roxanne goes to a nunnery. I know I'm taking the story a little long. Roxanne isolates herself. It's only later in life when she hears lines when Cyrano comes to visit her. She hears some lines that she recalls from the letter that she knows he couldn't couldn't have seen them. Only the author of the letters could have said what is being said to her. But time has passed. The opportunity is gone. It it is a play, a morality play, about the shallowness of the soul that we so often exchange for our beauty. Look, I, I married a beautiful woman. And we've had beautiful children. I just married the right girl, uh, honestly. But I want my kids to have a richness of the soul. Richness of character. I mean, it's, what, it's what's going to matter in the long run. The world will teach us otherwise. If you've got children, point them to people who are not beautiful externally, but beautiful with the richness of how God has given them. All right, let me move on. Pride of life is the third one. The pride of life. And let me just say this. He is, he is getting 
he, he, these are in ascending order of badness, so to speak. Lust of the flesh, then lust of the eyes, and ultimately the, the pride of life. When pride is present, we become the epicenter of our own existence. Here am I, here's the universe. Everything revolves around me. It's all about me. It's the elevation of ourselves at the expense of others. Again, I, I could stay here for a long time. I believe this is a disease of our culture. We, we not... Our pride in life for many people is not actually achieving anything but tearing everybody else down so that I seem higher. I mean, that's really what we, how we get more prideful. You know, I, I, I could work and do better. It's not, still not good to be prideful about that, but how much easier is me just tear you down? I say at the same place and my balloon seems higher. It's only one foot off the ground, but yours is on the ground. So I think I'm really something special. C.S. Lewis says pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. John's explanation of the world is this. The philosophy of the world that drives, drives our thought to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He's saying these run in contrast to God. How do we get back? Well, I think we do it by focusing on the Father. I'm sorry. My clicker is just not as fast as I want it to be. Loving the world is only brought into balance by focusing on God. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. That's right. We lives forever. Focusing on God will keep everything else in proper balance. In other words, don't focus on stuff and then hope God is going to be kind of brought into it in your peripheral vision. You with me? God is the focus. Everything else is peripheral. You've got to let faith permeate every part of your lives. Loving God, doing his will. Does faith permeate every aspect of your life? I, I think what John is trying to say to us in this letter is this. I want you to have fellowship with God. You have fellowship with God because of Jesus. Now love God, love people, but you've got it. To stay in fellowship with God, you've got to stay focused on him because... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, they'll become the epicenters of your world and you'll lose that vital, intimate relationship with him if you don't. You can't love the world, the stuff of the world, the philosophy of the world, and love God at the same time. Niebuhr in his book talks about the various perspectives that we might have. He talks about we can stand in opposition to our culture, that it's Christ against the culture. We can stand in agreement with our culture, which is Christ of culture. But he believes that it's really Christ above culture. We're in the world, but not of the world. We're transforming the world. And he'll give, he gives different permutations of that. But basically, he's saying what we need to be is not against or for, but above. You with me? 
so that we are influencing the culture rather than the culture influencing us. Hello? I mean, really, are we influencing those when we go outside, or is everything of the world being brought in here and we're not looking much different? It's painful to think about. It's painful to think about how we have become of the world, not just in the world. But our, the problem is we compartmentalize our faith too often. Um, I'll stick with football because it keeps Mark Rhodes with me a little longer. Uh, Arian Foster, Arian Foster is a running back for the Houston Texans. Great running back. Played college ball, I think, at Tennessee. Uh, Arian Foster um, is an atheist, for lack of a better description. He says he, he, it's not that he doesn't believe in a God. He's open to the idea. He just doesn't really know. But he's in this magazine, which is called, it's really an online interview called Openly Secular. Openly Secular, which is trying to encourage people. It's got people like uh, Bill Maher, uh, Penn and Teller, uh, guys who are openly atheistic. And it interviews them because it's kind of like, I'm going on a little long here, but it's kind of like if you're part of a group, maybe you'll be more encouraged to speak your mind. Anyway, here's the point of the story. Arian Foster talks about how hard it is to be an atheist in the South. That, that uh, going to Tennessee as a football player and then to Houston, both in the heart of the Bible Belt, that there's this culture within football in those regions that you're both a Christian and a football player. Here's the part I want you to see. In the article, Foster tells us of an interaction that he had with some players in a locker room. He overheard two players talking about immigration. One said to the other, we should close the border with Mexico. Stay with me for a second. The other agreed, and they just started talking about how to build a big wall and keep... You understand? Foster's mother is Mexican-American. So he asked the two, aren't you guys Christians? They both said they were. Foster said, didn't Jesus say to love thy neighbor? And is Mexico not our neighbor? The article continues. They began to argue, telling him he was missing the point that this wasn't about religion. Now listen. I am not here to argue an immigration policy. I'm not here to argue what you think about immigration, but I am here to tell you your faith dictates what you believe about immigration. As your faith dictates every part of what you believe about everything in your life. If I'm not firm enough, I'll get harder. I, I mean, really, we have to quit compartmentalizing our lives and saying, my money doesn't matter. My belief about this doesn't matter. My belief about that doesn't matter because as soon as we do, we're in danger of loving the world because you'll love certain compartments of your life more than others and you'll end up with two masters. Everything we believe about Jesus dictates every part of what we believe about everything else. It has to. 
It has to. Because our purpose is to be here to do the will of the Father. To do the will of the Father. Only in doing so can we fall in love in the way he tells us to. Only by loving God, staying focused on him and saying, I want to do his will and let his will be purposed in my life. Can we quit being self-centered? I mean, this, this goes to every extreme of who we are. How do we avoid the things that are so pressing in on us? We do it by staying focused on God. Staying in tune with him. It's not Christ against culture. It's not Christ in culture. It's Christ above, transforming who we are and the world around us. Why is it the church is not changing the world? I would have many possibilities. I think whenever we separate ourselves out and say, I got mine and that's all I need, how could we possibly influence? Or if we're so in it that we look no different than it, how can we influence? But if we stay centered with focused on God with one hand in eternity and another holding it out to a world to say, God loves you so much he sent his son to die for you. Take this cup of water in the name of Christ. Let me help you. Let's talk about immigration based on the verse, love thy neighbor. Let's talk, let's have a dialogue about does God love homosexuals? Let's talk about does because our faith has got to permeate every part of who we are and every discussion. I pray today, as we come to a time of ministry, we're going to pray for one another. You may be here today and you need prayer for healing, prayer for direction, prayer for relationships. But as our worship team comes and leads us during this time, here's what I want you to focus on. Am I so in love with God that I want to see his will accomplished on this earth? Or am I more in love with the world than I am with God? How do I, how do I stay focused in changing my school, my workplace, my apartment complex, my neighborhood, my, the team that I play on, my family, me? How, do, how does this happen? And maybe you want somebody to pray for you. So stand up. I'm going to pray for us. And as I pray, I'm going to ask our ministry teams to come. Worship team is up here. They're going to lead us in a time of worship. I want to just encourage you to consecrate yourself before the Lord this morning. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We exalt you. You're a great God. You're so great that you stand above our world. But you have a plan, a purpose to see accomplished on this earth. And you're using us to do it. And I pray, Lord, that we would not be in love with the world, but we'd be so in love with you that we could actually love the world in the way that you love it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Holy Spirit, move among us right now as we pray for one another, as we worship, as we consecrate ourselves as instruments of righteousness to be used in your hands this morning. In Jesus' name. If you need prayer, just come right now and receive prayer from one of these teams.
Mitch is going to lead us in worship.